Conversations from Capita. And welcome to Tomorrow's Organisations, the podcast series from Capita. I'm Justine Green, and on each episode, we'll be exploring how learning must evolve to reflect the change of pace, both at work and socially. This time, our focus is organisational well-being. Joining me in the studio to share their thoughts on the topic are Sir Kerry Cooper, Professor of Organisational Psychology and Health at the Alliance Manchester Business School, the University of Manchester. Hello, Kerry. Hello. And Ismail Amla, Chief Growth Officer for Capita. Welcome. Thank you. So before we start our discussion, uh, we do have to clear the air on one topic. Uh, Kerry and Ismail, both football fans, uh, but Kerry, you're a Manchester City fan. Absolutely. And I'm in the same studio with this funny man over here <laughs> who's yes, a red. Ismail, you're a Manchester City United fan. Uh, yeah, yeah. Get that right. Manchester United fan. <laughs> well, I hope this is not going to cause any rivalry no, issues during all. the podcast. No, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> OK. Right. We made up. So, Kerry, just set the scene for us. Uh, what is organisational well-being and what is it not? Well, what it's not is uh, sushi at your desk, mindfulness or an open plan office. What it really is, is creating the right kind of culture that human beings say, hey, this is great. I really look forward to going to work today. So the whole issue is how do we create the right kind of culture so that people, we retain people, we attract people, they produce the goodies for us that we need, and they don't get ill. So how do we do that? What are the pillars for organizational well-being? It's about how you're managed. So your line manager is critical from shop floor to top floor. Your boss very fundamental. The research shows that. You want to get the most out of people. You don't want them to be stressed. You want to give them good work-life balance. It's the line manager who does that. And the problem we have there is we have too many line managers who have no EQ, no emotional intelligence. We promote them on the basis of their technical skills, not their people skills. The other thing is hours of work. People want to work flexibly. We have the technology for them to work partly from home, partly from a central office. We have to enable that to happen. And a lot of companies have a menu of flexible working, but you can't take it, particularly men. So, Ismail, the CIPD Health and Wellbeing at Work report found that about 40% of businesses did have a wellbeing strategy, but 60% preferred to act on an ad hoc basis. So how do you think business leaders should be addressing organisational wellbeing? When I think about a environment which is the 40% actively thinking about organisational well-being. I think we're trying to create a culture where our people are happy, they feel safe, they're surrounded by friends, they're in an environment where they think they can learn. And all of the activities that we then do proactively is to try and put that sort of environment in place. But but to Kerry's point, it is, um, it is as much the culture and the leadership ethos and the mindset as it is around policy. Okay, so before we dig a little deeper, let me ask you both. Uh, Carrie, you talked about a good day at work. What does a good day at work look like for you and how often does it happen? Well, a good day at work doesn't happen every day for me. But when a student comes in to me and says, you made my career, you, you, you made my life for me and my family. And I hear that quite a bit and it does mean a lot to me. Ismail, what about you? What's a good day and how often does it happen? Well, I think I'd like to tell Kerry that he made my career. I was at Manchester Business School when uh, Kerry was teaching and uh, it paid a massive 
part, actually, in my career going on from there. For me, actually, I think a great day for me is where I feel I've helped some of the team learn something or think through something that they wouldn't otherwise have thought through. Uh, I've spent time during the working day connecting with family and friends as part of my day. Um, I feel that I'm in an environment that I want to be in and I'm not wasting time doing administrative tasks that I hate. Unfortunately, those days are special, but they do come. Well, for a moment, thank you both. And we'll look at diversity next. Tomorrow's organisations. So let's turn now to diversity and carry our podcast series about the future of learning. So how important is diversity in learning to a business? Oh, diversity is important. Uh, It's not just more women in boards, really. It's diversity everywhere, all sorts of different kind of people. It's not just even ethnic or racial. It's more than that. It's getting people with diverse opinions about things, not being similar to the senior management team you have. So I think that's really critical. But to be honest with you, we're not getting many ethnic minorities up there. We're not, we're, not, we're not very diverse, really. And even the women who get to boards now, I think the difficulty is we have the same women repeating it. So this, that troubles me as well. In other words, you might get woman X on five boards. So they say there's 30% of women on, on the boards of companies. It's not just the boards, by the way, because I think you need to populate the whole supply chain all the way up with a whole range of different people. BMA, ME, minorities have to be there too. We've concentrated a lot on women, but not on anything else. So Ismail, how does business create that system of learning? Um, It starts with understanding that not having it is a problem. And I think the data is very clear in the more diverse your boards, the more performance you're going to be. There's data there which tells that. There's also big data which says that if you could have more diversity in the workplace, never mind senior diversity, your uh, economic value to your nation would be improved. Uh, I remember uh, I, I moved to the US in 2011 and I'd, been, I'd worked for the, almost the last decade for big um, professional services firms, spent a lot of time at Accenture and so on. And the number of, if I think about my own background, the number of second generation Asian or black partners and associate partners w- w- was minimal. I came back in 2019 and it's not really changed. And so, you know, this is a problem that we recognize without really fixing it. So, Kerry, I guess business leaders need a certain set of skills to bring about a culture of well-being. How do we fix it? What do they need to possess? You know, we frequently hear very senior people say the most valuable resource we have is our human resource. But they don't action that. And they need to do that strategically. And that means just changing the culture. So, for example, we shouldn't be promoting people on the basis just of their technical skills, but that's what we do primarily. What we should do for every single new post we have, managerial post from shop floor to top floor, we ought to say there's parity between their technical skills and their people skills. If they don't have the people skills, they don't get the job. So that's really important because who is the person that influences me at work and gives me a good day at work? It's my boss. The way he or she behaves the culture they create, whether they value me, they trust me, they allow me to work flexibly, they don't have a long hours culture, they don't email me at night, they don't email me while I'm on holiday. That's the kind, And they tell me when I do a good job. 
That's the kind of person I need. I think that's par part of our problem in the UK. Our productivity is seventh in the G7 and 17th in the G20. It's poor. And I think it's because we don't have the right people managers or socially skilled and interpersonally skilled managers in the workplace. Now, Ismail, diversity and inclusion is at the forefront of many businesses. We've talked a little bit about the focus on it. But is there more to be done in terms of promoting its relevance? Actually, I don't think there's more to be done in promoting its relevance. I think there's more to be done in executing on all of the incredible ideas that everybody's coming up with. Um, the first thing, if I, if I look at, if, if we take my own example in the businesses we're in right now, trying to identify pools of diverse uh, sources of labour, if you like, and getting access to them is not as easy as it may sound. So there's a huge amount of policy change that I think that needs to be made. I think there's also um, training that needs to happen within organisations like ours, in, you know, everybody, including myself, around bias and discrimination, because we all have it. All of us, all of us have it. But to be able to recognise it and to put some uh, monitoring in place so that we are we are making decisions knowing that we have it. I think it's important. And then I think in the workplace, this final thing I would say is managing microactions. I think we all have a responsibility. So I know we talk about it at work. If you're in a meeting and you know some woman is talking and the bloke talks over, you've got to stop the meeting and say, can you continue with your point? And once you start thinking in those terms, the amount of time that that sort of thing happens is huge. I don't know whether, whether you think that, Kerry. But it, I do, yeah. I think you actually have to go and find yeah, you have to diversity. Live you have, you to, have live to live it, it and yeah. you have to find out. You have to create diversity yourself mm. because we need these people in our businesses. Well, thanks for that. In our final segment next, let's see what benefits organisational well-being can bring to a business. So, Kerry, for some organisational well-being, it's a bit out there. It's in the ether. It's not so tangible, perhaps, as other management priorities. But what benefits does good organisational well-being bring to a company? OK, I'll tell you the big motivators. One motivator is if we take a look at the latest published figures by the health and safety executive, of all the sickness absence we had last year, 57%. For, in terms of long-term sickness absence was due to the common mental disorders of anxiety, depression, and stress. That's a, that's a loser for an organization. That's one of the key factors. The second key factor is what a senior HR guy said to me. He said, I said, why are you guys into well-being? And he said, regrettable turnover. And I said, that's nice. I think I'm going to have a book on that. I've got to write a book on that. I like the title. What is it? He said, we can't afford to lose key people. The recession, we downsized. We lost critical people. And how do we retain, this is talent retention, the millennials who will walk if you don't have the right thing. So how do we retain them, get the most out of them? So that's another, I think, really kind of an important factor. Ismail, as we mentioned earlier, you're Capita's chief growth officer. So do you think there's a link between organisational well-being and growth? Yeah, organisational well-being is directly uh, related to employee engagement. And we know that employee engagement is related to what people say about the work, whether they stay or not, and whether they'll strive. Organisational well-being is actually a 
ethical responsibility of a company leadership to create an environment where people can be happy. So, Carrie, over the past few years, I think we've made uh, huge strides in the way that mental health is viewed generally. Is this an area that businesses now need to be looking at more as part of their programmes to feed into good organisational well-being? Oh, they are. It's such a bottom line issue in terms of sickness, absence, even presenteeism. A high proportion of people turning up to work ill are turning up to work with depression and anxiety. So, no, this is kind of a big issue. Incidentally, you know, the evidence is mounting. It does hit the bottom line. It's not could it, should it, we think it could, we think we should. It's a moral issue. It is a moral issue. But by the way, it is hitting the bottom line. Think about you. If you are happy and really content with where you're working, you're going to give more to the organization. You're going to, you know, contribute more. You've, you owe, they allow you to work flexibly. So I have to pay back. So a lot of people who do work flexibly tend to work even longer hours, by the way, because they just thank the organization in a way. On yeah, that. I don't know whether you saw the, the reports that were coming out around Microsoft trying a four-day week in Japan. And they did it over the summer, and they they reported a 40% increase in productivity. Yeah, and in Gothenburg, when they did the two-year experiment in Gothenburg in Sweden with all the civil servants in the, in the town of Gothenburg, two whole years. Uh, uh, half of them were put on a 30-hour week. Half of them were put on a 40-hour week. They were paid the same. Productivity was substantially higher for the 30-hour week people. Uh, their sickness absence rates were lower, more job satisfied. And if you just installed it in every organization, even if you paid them the same amount of money that they were paid working 40 hours, 30 hours, you'd make up more money and higher productivity. The evidence is mounting now. The workplace needs to change. Okay, so let's close our discussion with a little bit of advice from you both. If someone listening needs a starting point to review the organisational well-being of their business, what are the first steps they need to take? I would start with how do people perceive me? We always do. What I do when I do this kind of work with organisations is we do a well-being audit with a proper psychometric tool. Everybody comes in. You don't have information about specific individuals. You break the data down demographically and say, here's what our issues are. In other words, you're giving voice to the employees. They're telling you how they perceive your organization. That's the first thing. Then you action that. Then you look at your line manager. Then you look at flexible working if people want it and enable them to do it. And then you manage people by praise and reward and not by fault finding. Ismail, what about you? What do you think? What we try to do is start with purpose uh, because we felt that every decision we made should go back to a principle that we are very clear about. And that purpose is something that we think all our stakeholders could buy into. So I think having a purpose, and being, and this, which is different from strategy and mission and vision and all those things, it's a more principle thing. I think it's important. I, I, I like the idea of the feedback that Kerry talked about, I think we should understand from our people what they actually think of the culture rather than what we would like to think the culture is about because culture drives so much of this environment we're talking about. And then and then the final thing that I would focus in on because, it, again, it drives culture is this implementation of the growth mindset, which is we all believe that we're in an environment where we can still learn, where we can fail and it's okay, where we're all part of a team who are going to jointly learn together to succeed in the marketplace. Carrie Cooper and Ismail Amla, what a fascinating conversation. Uh, Thank you both for your insights. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, as you know, we only have a limited time on our podcast, but we hope this has sparked a conversation on what's clearly an important part of business now and in the future. 
So that's it for this edition of Tomorrow's Organisations. But do join us again soon for our next episode. Until then, from me, Justine Green, Kerry Cooper and Ismail Amla, it's goodbye. If you'd like to find out more, go to capita.com slash future of work and learning.